If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. Green Dreamer is a community-supported show backed mostly by listeners like you. If you're not listening in for the first time and you aren't low-income or struggling financially, we'd love to get your direct support so we can keep diving into these critical discussions, often sidelined by mainstream media. If you believe in and value this work, you can chip in starting at just $2 at greendreamer.com support. And if you are a current or past supporter, I see you and... We are so grateful. Thank you so much. What is lost among the epidemiological and virological conversation are things like natural and holistic approaches to boosting immunity and and even resisting resisting uh, viral infections and and the whole larger conversation about the microbiome and the virome and how we are embedded in a web of genetic and biological relationships and so forth. And when we just focus on the separate self and define health as the integrity of this separate self, there's so much that we don't see. Today, we have here on the show Charles Eisenstein, who is an American public author and speaker. His work covers a wide range of topics, including the history of human civilization, economics, spirituality, and the ecology movement. And some of the primary themes that he explores include anti-consumerism, interdependence, and how myth and narrative influence our culture. This is a really profound and thought-provoking two-part episode, one of those that might bring new insights insights when you listen in for a second time, a third time, with a lot of layers of nuance and complexity to unpack. So to start here in this part one, we go over things such as how our short-sighted war mentality against climate change parallels with our dominant approaches to combating the coronavirus pandemic, as well as dealing with crime in our criminal justice system. Whether it's possible to be ethical within an unethical system or be sustainable in an exploitative and extractive system, and why being ethical and being sustainable shouldn't be how we necessarily approach our activism or label ourselves, and more. Green Dreamer, if you're ready, take a deep breath and let's dive in. Green Dreamer. 
Hey, it's Kamea Shane, and this is Green Dreamer, a podcast exploring our paths to ecological balance, intersectional sustainability, and true abundance and wellness for all. If you haven't already, make sure to hit subscribe, and together, let's learn what it takes to thrive in every sense of the word. I have my own personal narrative about how I came to do what I do, but on another level, who knows? You know, it's it's a mystery why why we choose the life paths that we do. But I remember from a very early age caring a lot about the environment. Um, about I, I remember the, the very I have various memories from childhood of of really memories of disturbance when, for example, we visited Yellowstone National Park one time when I was maybe 12, 12 years old. And and I we were hiking deep into the park and we ended up at, there was this pond, it was just me and my dad. And there were these three or four young men who were hurling rocks at at this otter that was swimming in the pond and like trying to kill it, you know? And I just couldn't understand uh, it just it was just so painful to to see that happening and to not be able to do anything about it. And that feeling I came to recognize very intimately over the years as I learned about the ecological destruction happening on earth and the injustice, the trauma happening to human beings, the the almost like cosmic scale of the destruction and I would feel the same feeling of, of like this empathic pain and also helplessness, powerlessness to do anything about it except watch. And I wanted to understand, I, I, and maybe it was the, the discomfort of the feeling of powerlessness that drove me to want to understand, well, what can I do about it when just like in that situation, me and my dad, weren't going to be able to make these four brawny young men who are, you know, carrying rocks to stop. We weren't going to be able to force them to stop in the same way as we probably aren't going to be able to force the military, industrial, pharmaceutical, medical, NGO, financial, industrial complex to stop. But is there some other way to meet this situation that that became and it wasn't this one event that precipitated this quest but it was it was it was part of a of a history that that propelled me on this on this search mm-hmm. and i could you know tell you many other books or experiences that i that i encountered but that that one kind of sums them all up a lot of discussions by environmentalists on the coronavirus pandemic have involved talking about what we can learn from this time to apply to our response to the climate crisis. And I'd like to take a different approach here and first talk about our dominant incomplete responses to climate change and how we can draw parallels from that with our dominant responses to also criminal justice reform and then the coronavirus pandemic, as these are two things that have been at the top of mind for so many people. 
So your book, Climate, details how the quantification of the natural world leads to a lack of integration and our fight mentality. With an entire chapter unpacking the climate change deniers' point of view, you advocate for expanding our exclusive focus on carbon emissions to see the broader picture beyond our short-sighted and incomplete approach, end quote. I'm wondering what your take is on why we've had this tendency to center the climate change discussion around carbon dioxide, which may have diminished so many other parts to this whole that are equally important, and what has been the cost of this myopic view in our responses. Yeah, well, thank you. That's that's a that question is very well 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 framed. So yeah, in I mean, this is almost universal in our society that to to exclude and marginalize the things that are actually the most precious or actually the most important, at least the most important to coming to healing. So in the case of criminal justice, for example, uh, what our society generally leaves out is the conditions that create crime to begin with. And instead, it's all about punishment. In the case of coronavirus, what is lost among the epidemiological and virological conversation are things like natural and holistic approaches to boosting immunity and and even resisting resisting uh, viral infections and and the whole larger conversation about the microbiome and the virome and how we are embedded in a web of genetic and biological relationships and so forth and when we just focus on the separate self and define health as the integrity of this separate self. There's so much that we don't see, including solutions to the to the current crisis that are actually much more accessible and much less expensive than the pharmaceutical and vaccine-based approach, not to mention lockdown and quarantine that's being applied today. And so it's it's about and I will get to climate change in a second, but it's but so for example, it might be about bringing in traditional medicines and 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 I mean medicines in both senses, specific therapies and substances, but also uh, ways of doing medicine that are outside of the dominant culture today. And so climate change is the same. Oh, oh and I could also link this to to okay. So you asked, you know, why. What's underneath the, the obsessive focus on carbon dioxide? It's kind of within our comfort zone to find an enemy and to frame the problem along the lines of here's an enemy to destroy. Here's something to dominate. Same thing with COVID-19. You, you, you identify a health crisis with a virus. And I'm not saying that there is not a virus or that it's a hoax or that the virus isn't making people sick. But think about it, like compared to the epidemic in our lifetimes of autoimmunity, allergies, depression, I mean, all of suicide, all of these things have been skyrocketing. The prevalence of childhood chronic conditions, for example, uh, according to Dr. Zach Bush, having increased from 1% in the 70s or 80s to 52% today, like we have an ongoing pandemic of diseases that you cannot identify a causal agent, a one bad thing to go to war against. So, so we just kind of ignore those crises and focus on the ones 
where there's something to kill, something to exclude, something to bomb, something to, to imprison, something to control. So climate change as well, we face an ecological crisis that in my view cannot be reduced to one substance. It's tempting to say, oh, uh, insect Armageddon, you know, decline, 80% decline in flying insect biomass. Well, that must be caused by, by global warming, which is caused by greenhouse gases. Or plankton counts declining in the ocean, that must be caused, you know, increasing floods and droughts. Oh, climate change. Like, it's so convenient and so comfortable for our, our way of thinking to locate the source of a problem in one thing that especially one thing that we can quantify and control and problem solved. I feel like we just have this inner desire to really want to be able to make sense of the world. So the easy way to do that is to oversimplify the complexity of the world in order to feel like we understand it, as opposed to really leaning into the gray and all the complexity that's embedded in all of this. And you touched on so many things in your response that I really want to dive into, specifically the intersection between healing our ecosystems and reforming our criminal justice system is something that I've been thinking about a lot. So for example, regenerative earth stewardship invites us to ask, how can we create the conditions that allow biodiversity and life to thrive, rather than simply targeting and attempting to get rid of the symptoms of the problem, like pests, weeds, or a lack of soil fertility. And similarly, transformative justice also invites us to examine the larger conditions that lead people to act out and respond with unwanted behavior or violence in the first place. Rather than simply imprisoning and casting aside these people we label as being bad, period, which may really be symptoms of larger societal issues manifesting in harmful individual responses. So I'm wondering if you can talk more about how our war mentality in dealing with crime has not only failed us, but may have even worsened or perpetuated social injustice and violence. I mean, it's pretty obvious how it worsens the conditions that create crime, because when you, for example, uh, destroy families and communities by imprisoning the youth and deprive children of positive male role models because they're not even present, you know, you're going to create the conditions of trauma and deprivation that bring people to act out unlawfully or act out violently. Another of the breeding conditions of crime is obviously poverty and cultural disruption. I mean, th there's not one single cause of criminality. And the systems that generate crime include the whole society, include people who would, you know, never commit a violent act, but we participate in, in systems of economic exploitation and racial injustice. So it, it's a lot less comfortable to look at that and a lot more challenging and even a lot more, it's not only that, oh, you know, we don't want to admit our complicity, it's that we don't actually know what to do because we ourselves are locked into the system that depends on inequality. I mean, if you want to exit that system, there's no easy formula. Well, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation right now if we weren't using Skype that is built on a 
information backbone uh, and using computers that requires the mining of, of copper and silver and rare earth minerals to construct this technology. Like we're, we're part of it too. There's no way to separate ourselves out and make ourselves into the good guys. And in fact, that impulse, which I'm seeing an awful lot of in environmental and social justice movements right now to, to appear as if you're on team good in this war against team evil, mm. that very impulse perpetuates the basic conditions of our injustice and ecocide right now, the basic mindset of, of domination, which offers the formula of dominate those bad guys, win the war on evil, win the narrative war, the information war, cancel and call out and deplatform and shame the people who are on team evil so that team good can prevail. Like this whole mindset of domination, that is the origin of the problem to begin with. That's the, the template for ecocide. That's the template for exploitation. That's the template for racism. Mm. So, so this is, you know, it just, it just points to how thoroughly systemic and, and how deeply and thoroughly systemic our current conditions are. It's not the superficial level of finding the bad guy and tearing them down, which is what Hollywood movies offer as the solution to a problem. This, we're, this is, the, the revolution is to move beyond that. You, and you talked about, uh, I can't remember the term you used, regenerative justice? What, what did you say? Uh, transformative justice. Transformative justice. Yeah, to transform the conditions that, that are responsible for injustice instead of to blame it on certain people, whether it's the right blaming it on, you know, welfare queens or whatever racist stereotype you want to offer for, you know, or thugs or something like that, or the left blaming it on racists and white supremacists and misogynists. It's like both sides are united in agreement mm. that the problem are these despicable people. <laughs> and I'm like, you guys are actually both on the same side. You're both in agreement. And it's an agreement that will generate an endless supply of outrages and atrocities to feed that very worldview. And are you willing to let go of having anybody to hate? Are you willing to let go of any target for your righteous indignation if that's what it takes to bring actual healing? And you may not get to look like the hero. You may not get to finally be proven right. You may not see those who you've judged suffer punishment. Are you willing to sacrifice that if that's what it takes to have a racially, economically, and socially uh, and environmentally healed society. I've been thinking about the news Daddy leaves it on all day through I've been thinking about the wars And to be honest I can't take it anymore I Awful words you say But hate can't be The face of the American dream
This also leads me to wonder whether it's possible for an individual person to be ethical within an unethical and exploitative system, or whether it's possible for one person to so-called be living sustainably within a larger system that is extractive and unsustainable. Because I feel like we have a tendency both within sustainability and the social justice space to make this feel like individual choices or individual goals. But it leads me to wonder whether you can fully achieve ethical purity and ethical and sustainability at a purely individualistic level. And why would you want to? For me, I would like us to replace our aspirations to be ethical with an aspiration to be helpful, an aspiration to be useful. Because, I mean, what's the goal of being ethical? Is is it that you get to celebrate yourself for how ethical you are? Is it in order to get off the hook when somebody comes at you with condemnation or accusation and to be able to demonstrate, no, 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 uh, you can't attack me because I have a much smaller ecological footprint than that person over there. And I've done my, you know, white fragility work, et cetera, et cetera, and and like it's 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 almost this coded in-group uh, inclusion mechanism. It's like it's like here's how I display my belonging to an in-group, and that's okay. I mean that's what that's what people do. But if you actually want to change conditions, then I, I mean I guess I'm just interested in in what ethics actually codes for people psychologically right and i would just offer as 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 a possibility to replace ethical with helpful not so that you get to like yourself and and believe yourself to be one of the good guys but because you actually care about what's happening in the world how do i help not how do i identify but how do i help yeah That also really aligns in my mind with, so you mentioned people not identifying with being ethical, but being helpful. And for me, that brings up this idea of not not identifying as being sustainable, but rather something like regenerative, where it's more so about what you're doing rather than what you've achieved for yourself. Right. And and that requires, um, or I would say actually just invites us to orient toward the needs around us in a very tangible, practical way. So you might come into a relationship with a piece of land or a relationship with a person or a community. And when you're in that relationship, their needs will speak to your heart if you are stepping into love uh, and you'll respond to those needs. And it won't matter because you, you know those needs, it won't matter so much how it looks to other people. In fact, a lot of the most necessary work to be done today is pretty much invisible. You know, it's what, it's what we do on a local level. I think we need to actually focus more on the local level and the interpersonal level because that changes the, the foundation of our systems. And I'm not saying to not, you know, be active on a political level or anything like that. But the work that is least celebrated ends up being the most important of all. I, I like to ask sometimes 
I ask people, who is the most important person in the history of South Africa? Most people would say, well, it's Nelson Mandela. And I understand why they would say that. But then I say, well, how do you know that it wasn't actually Nelson Mandela's grandmother? Because where did he get that resiliency? How did how was he able to go through decades in prison and come out not thirsting for revenge, but thirsting for peace and healing? Uh, and and how was he able to hold that in those conditions? Maybe it was because of the love that his grandmother gave him when he was a boy. I mean, I, I have no idea, actually, but but maybe or maybe it was because of a community of people around him. So why do we celebrate this one man instead of, well, because he's there to celebrate, he's visible to us. But what about the invisible people who created those conditions that even allowed a Nelson Mandela to exist? Those people, those kinds of people are everywhere, all over society, and they never get celebrated. And no one's ever telling them how important their work is or rewarding them financially for that work. Quite the opposite, you know, they're, I mean, I'm thinking of, you know, the, the woman working at a daycare center, taking care of other people's babies and invisible to anybody pouring her love into that work. And those kids grow up and they don't even remember her, but imprinted in them is that experience of having received an extra dose of love when they were too young to even remember it. Like those kinds of people and the opportunities to act in that way in our relationships with people and with other beings, those are available all the time, but they're just not as, as uh, glamorous or celebrated and, or uh, useful in warding off the condemnation that might come if you are not political. And I guess this is also part of the reason why our economic system needs to be transformed because it does not currently value people for their inherent worth and for all these meaningful ways that people are and have been contributing to our society. Right. I mean, mostly it values people for how they contribute to the world destroying machine, mm. you know, how they participate in the extraction of resources and the exploitation of labor. And I'm not saying that, you know, every job and every paycheck is contributing to that, but Generally speaking, what economic growth is, is the conversion of nature into products and relationships into services. So it's hard to avoid participating in that process in our current economic system. And so, like you're saying, you know, that's why we need, you know, this isn't just a, like from what I said before, it sounds like, oh, you know, Charles is talking about withdrawing from the collective economic political level into the personal level, but I'm not saying that. I just don't want to privilege the big over the small. But that doesn't mean to ignore the big, too. We definitely need uh, profound systems change, especially in economics. A lot of our other uh, social injustices are rooted in economics. One, one thing that I've watched with some dismay, actually, is the almost near disappearance of class issues in the current race dialogue when you know racism is a key enabler of economic inequality but it's not the cause of it and if you have a system that demands that some people be exploited 
then you need something like racism to say to to justify it to say well, yeah these people are degraded and and impoverished because they deserve it because they are inferior because i mean slavery itself was enabled by racism but it was in fact according to some scholars it was almost invented in order to justify slavery it wasn't that that people were so racist that they decided to have slaves it was that in order to justify having slaves they had to be racist mm. so this is this this um ignoring of class in favor of something much less disruptive to capitalism like like capitalism would be just fine with replacing all of the white CEOs with black CEOs or all of the male CEOs with female CEOs and the the straight generals with gay generals as long as they continue to perform the job descriptions that capitalism as we know it assigns them so so anyway i said a lot there but <laughs> So much to think about. And to apply everything that we just discussed to the current pandemic, what's really shown me the incomplete view of our dominant culture and mainstream media's understanding of the coronavirus pandemic is our focus on things like wearing masks, sanitizing every surface, refraining from touching things in public spaces, and social isolation. And those things can be helpful, especially in the short term. But I guess like you, I'm also frustrated by the lack of discussion around what's made us vulnerable to virus pandemics like this one. And even in public health recommendations on dealing with the coronavirus, a lack of discussion on things we know, even in the immediate term, to boost people's immunity, like sleeping early, getting enough rest, eating wholesome and nutritious foods, not living in immense stress, and being able to drink clean water and breathe clean air. But all of which, I guess, become systemic issues when you start to really dig deep to look at how many people don't have access to these things. Right. Uh, yeah, this is Another example of what is left out of the conversation that is actually the most important of all, you know, just as carbon metrics leave out any species that doesn't measurably affect carbon, you know, like, like, you know, bats, for example, or great horned owls or something like that, you know, like environmental issues like that become secondary because they're invisible to the metrics. And there's a lot that you mentioned that is invisible to the metrics of, you know, case fatality rates and total number of cases and total number of deaths and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and this big debate about, you know, is the recent spike, is that due to increased testing or is that due to a genuine surge in cases or if it's both then how much of one and how much of the other? And like there's this, all this discussion and what gets left out of the conversation is exactly the things you were talking about that would totally change the equation. Yeah, clean air, clean water, um, just our, our way of life. It's not like people are making dumb choices and are just ignorant of how to live. It's that the system that we are immersed in has compelled us to live in a certain way. You know, if you're stressed and barely making ends meet and and traumatized like you're gonna go to fast food you know you're gonna go to convenience it's not that you're a lesser sort of human than the people who have started to you know eat local food and cook their own food and become interested in health 
it's again, just like with crime, you know, it's the circumstances, mm. which allows us to be a lot more compassionate and less judgy when we interact with people who are from our eyes doing it wrong. It's like, what are the conditions? Not, not only the social and economic conditions, but the psychological conditions, the narrative conditions, the story of normal that people are immersed in where it's totally normal to, you know, drink a 32 ounce soda with your hamburger, you know, like when we realize how all encompassing the conditions are that generate uh, harmful behavior, the first, the first response is uh, bewilderment. It's, I, I have no idea what to do because it's so all encompassing. I have no idea what the solution is. And that is such a positive step. No matter what social injustice or environmental horror that we are facing, to go through the territory of I have no idea what to do about it is so valuable because then we're not going to default into actions that pretend to do something about it, but that actually only change things on a very superficial level, if at all, or even make things worse. For example, a lot of the things that we're doing to cut carbon actually are environmentally making things worse. Biofuels plantations, for example, where, where you know huge tracts of virgin forest and subsistence peasant agriculture get cleared away to plant jotropha trees and palm oil plantations and sugarcane and stuff to be made into fuel, like or you know to be wood chipped. You know that that solution makes sense when we don't go through the territory of the complexity and all-encompassing nature of the crisis. And so same thing with COVID-19, you know, to, to default to, this, to, to the control-based solutions that don't actually touch the crisis on a deeper level. This was part one of our two-part conversation with Charles Eisenstein. If you enjoyed this episode, then be sure to look out for part two, where we're going to go on to explore how the responses of various governments to the coronavirus pandemic, justifiable or not, such as lockdown, quarantine, surveillance and tracking, censorship of misinformation, have been authoritarian, and why we should remain critical of these approaches even if we understand their immediate-term purposes, how our dominant use and acceptance of the meaning of certain words such as privilege to mostly mean financially well-off or white feed into implicitly holding up the same value systems that we're trying to challenge and dismantle and more. To support more conversations like this, starting at just a tip of $2, you can again head to greendreamer.com support. Today's song feature is American Dream by Ray Zaragoza, whose music you can find at rayzaragoza.com. And thank you so much for tuning in. I look forward to catching you in the next episode. And I've been thinking about our mother how they took her away from her people Put her in a boarding school Away from her brother, sister, and culture I can hear her every night Saying we've gotta make this right Cause hate can't be the face of the American dream 
mind is a choice and it can start with me And change is a choice and it can start with me And change is a choice and it can start with me